Hello, everyone. This is uh, Scott McNamara, again with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. I have Christy Roth here today, uh, who is another Texas Women's University alum uh, joining me, and she's going to talk a little bit about some of the online learning resources she's created. Um, she is from Stevens Point University, Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin. Is that right, Christy? University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, yes. Thank you very much. Um, with that, just real quick, I'm going to let my, my viewers know that uh, if they've been following um, these last few weeks, I took a, a short hiatus from doing that weekly series on coronavirus and APE and resources that we can use, but I had a very healthy uh, and happy baby come on into the world uh, about two weeks ago now, and uh, everything was A-OK -okay in the pandemic. Um, they, yes, they, they kept us in a room. I, I could not leave a room. Uh, and every time that people came in, um, even if it was 3 a.m., we had to put our mask on. So that was, but aside from that, um, it was pretty, I think, pretty normal. So it, it went well, though. So we're really happy. Her name's Cora Jean, and she is doing wonderful. So um, yeah, thank was, was the Cora chosen as a play on Corona or? It, no, somebody said that. Yes, uh, yes, people actually did ask that. Uh, no, it's my great grandmother's name, but uh, yes, yeah, so it was not a, I just always liked that name and uh, my wife liked it. But yes, no, it is, I could see the um, people thinking that. I, I have also thought about this generation. Uh, of people, kids that are getting like being born right now, and they're all going to have been born during this, and they're all going to, I don't know, have that shared experience kind of. Um, yeah, for sure. So I think about that for her and what that will be like. Um, but anywho, so Christy, um, what I want you to do real quick, and we kind of did this beforehand, but I, I, uh, I would love for you to, can you tell me a little bit about? Um, your background as an APE teacher and uh, where you're at now. Sure, absolutely. So I uh, started my career in general physical education, even though I had a, a master's and a passion in adaptive PE. I got my master's degree in APE from North Carolina A&T State University immediately after my undergraduate. But then I moved overseas and taught general physical education at the elementary level on the island of Saipan. And then I came back and taught at inner city middle school, general physical education and health. And then I got my dream job at um, a school for students with disabilities, primarily intellectual disabilities and autism. And I was the APE teacher there at the school for a couple of years. And then I moved into higher education. I realized teaching an adjunct in higher ed and running a master's APE grant at North Carolina A&T State University that I just wanted to learn so much more about APE. So I applied for and was accepted onto the grant at TWU. And studied there and after I graduated I wanted to take all the content knowledge I learned in my doctoral program and apply it into the schools again because I knew eventually I wanted to go into higher education but I really wanted to be one of those faculty who 
lived and learned on the job. And so I went back into the schools for two more years before I moved into higher education and just really learned what I learned uh, was good and true and worked and what probably wasn't as sound as, as what was what was taught, although TW is fantastic, almost everything was sound. But <laughs> um, so it gave me a lot of good hands-on application experience. Um, I did serve as a consultant all the years I was getting my doctorate as well, so I was applying the information there. Um, then I've been at uh, UW-Stevens Point for almost 16 years now, and I initially ran their APE program, moved into the role of director of the physical education program. We have a license in Wisconsin for adaptive PE. And so I was able to run that program. I then uh, built a technology center and served as the director of technology, innovation and technology, some kind of title like that, and ran the technology center for about five years. And then I moved in as director of graduate studies for the School of Education. Um, I decided to return to my faculty position a year ago. And so I've been teaching primarily in the online master's in education program. I teach almost, I teach fully online and I still, I have always taught two classes in adaptive PE, an assessment in APE and a seminar in APE. And the work that we're talking about today is actually work that we've been uh, building for a long time in the seminar in APE class. And the beauty of this class is we can respond to current issues and trends in adaptive PE. There's no, the curriculum, the framework of the curriculum is centered around what's currently happening in terms of issues and trends in adaptive PE and how can we learn about and generate strategies for resolving those issues and responding well to trends. So um, I've always taught those. I'm a co-author of the textbook Principles and Methods of Adaptive Physical Education and Recreation with Drs. Jean Piper and Lori Zittle. We are just gearing up for our 13th edition. We have a planning meeting next week. So that's kind of a little bit about my background. I do, I live in Wisconsin with my husband and I have two grown children. One of them is a software engineer and the other is a uh, quarantining at home. He's a senior in college. So um, he moved back home and just finished his semester. He has one more semester for graduation. Uh, double major in nuclear engineering and music performance. Wow, that's an interesting uh, uh, major, double major there. But that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I, I'm gonna uh, just pick pick on one of the two of the things that you're saying about yourself. Um, we had uh, Dr. Jeff uh, McGubbin on here uh, a little while ago talking about leadership and how like sometimes people in our field um, get put into leadership positions because we're, we're often more marginalized within our world and we have to, you know, figure out ways to advocate for ourselves and, um, you know, make things work. Um, did you find anything like that APE set you up to be elite, uh, like to go into something like the graduate uh, uh, college? I would say um, what set me up the most was uh, deeply rooted in successful adapted physical education, which is creativity. And I feel like I have been a successful educator and practitioner because I'm very creative and that led me to innovation. And the technology center that I built 
was called the Innovation Space. And we just looked for creative solutions to problems. And that's what administrators do. And so I think another factor that helped me as in leadership was the ability for strategic planning and communication. And as an adaptive physical educator, I was working with general physical educators all the time. And I needed to have effective communication in order to, for us to have a successful collaboration on serving the needs of our students with disabilities. And I also needed to be able to create a vision of what adaptive PE could look like in the districts that I worked in because it was so undeveloped most of the time when I went into those districts. So I would say those skills uh, really helped me as a leader. Um, before we talk about some of the resources you created, can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted your position and, and some of your classes with APE or uh, and how you've seen it impact APE uh, in general? Uh, sure, yeah, I would say that for me personally in terms of a position, it, it didn't have significant impact because I already taught fully online. My biggest shift is that I work from home and so my biggest shift is now I have coworkers. My husband's working from home and <laughs> My son is here too, and so I actually enjoy having coworkers at home. Um, so it wasn't a tremendous shift for me because all of my classes were already online, but I will say that it was a significant shift for my students. Um, I, my undergraduate students in adaptive PE were, are missing their general physical education classes, their practicum experiences that they were, that they now can no longer attend. Uh, trying to be collaborative and understanding with faculty who are trying to move their classes online at the last minute, they feel a loss. You know, many of them have, are, are, have unstable housing environments when faced with potentially moving home. They have unstable internet. They, some of them have financial hardships. They have lost jobs. Um, so it's, it's required a lot of uh, flexibility and understanding and empathy that we've been, I've been working hard to provide to the students. Um, for me as a faculty member, we've been notified that it's most likely we will be furloughed intermittently um, all of next academic year. So it's likely one day a month I'll have a furlough, which has an economic impact on me, but it feels minimal compared to what other people are having to sustain. And so I'm trying to um, you know, be accepting of that just because I understand uh, why it's happening. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, and I've had some similar experiences with students, um, kids telling me they have to like go into the McDonald's parking lot to like get Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. um, as well as I think something that I've noticed is that when maybe they had one or two classes online, they were okay, but then when all five or six of their classes went online, it seemed like that was a bit overwhelming just to keep up with the reg constant emails and um, things that they're not nor normally used to. And that's probably yeah. the same thing for parents at home um, with kids, uh, trying to keep up with those same things as they weren't used to that, this huge barrage um, of communication. So. Yeah, and I think that like in the K-12 level, many schools have worked hard to centralize where assignments are placed and platforms that are being used. And in higher education, we have less of a centralization process. And so subsequently, 
different faculty are using different platforms, different methods of communication. Some of them communicate through the LMS, some of them strictly email, some use social media. And so it's harder for students to have multiple places to have to go to submit assignments, get, get assignments, communicate with their professor. Um, so I think that that layer of complication makes it a little bit harder for college students today. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, yeah. Um, so with that, uh, Christy, um, I think you're, you're quite unique in our field uh, because you are doing online learning stuff. You are being innovative and a, uh, someone that's doing things in the technology world. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the resources that you've created uh, that could maybe be useful during this pandemic? Sure, absolutely. So for quite a while, my uh, undergraduate students and I have built a, we've maintained a YouTube channel um, called, it's, it's just under my name, but it's Activities for Students with Limited Mobility. And my students are challenged with coming up with an activity that can be completed with someone who has minimal movement, uh, more than likely ambulates in a wheelchair, more than likely a power wheelchair. Uh, the type of student we talk about that are our target students are those with maybe spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. And, um, but we, we want to maintain a focus on alignment with the general curriculum. And so they, as our job in adaptive PE is to provide equal opportunities to the general curriculum, we constantly should be looking at what is happening in general PE and how can I make that, how can I provide an equal opportunity for that to my students with disabilities? And so we, uh, students are challenged with coming up with these activities and we have a, a fantastic time. Um, we take them into the gym, we pull out our equipment, the students present their activities and sometimes they're awesome and sometimes we'll spend 45 minutes trying to tweak it so that it's possible to do with the general equipment that would be in an average PE closet, um, making sure that it works. Once we get it down pat, we videotape it and then we put it up on our YouTube channel. We also have an app that we have built called um, iModifyPESD. We have, uh, I have another app called iModifyPE, but this one is for, the SD is for students with severe disabilities. And the app, um, so all of those videos in the YouTube channel are actually linked inside of this app. And so it's really just a different way to access and navigate those videos. Um, so when we had the quarantine happen, and I'm a, uh, I'm a, a creeper on the APE specialist Facebook group. <laughs> I don't post a lot, but I read everything. <laughs> and so I creep on the uh, fantastic work that our APE specialist groups have been, group has been posting since the pandemic happened. And there's just resource after resource after resource, and I'm just constantly in awe of the creativity and the work and the passion that the AP specialists in our country and our world have for serving students with disabilities. And one of the themes that I saw that kept coming up was, what do I do with my students with more severe disabilities at home? Like Shape America came out with 
really, really great resources for physical educators to use. There's lots of great Twitter posts, um, but when you look at many of these videos and resources, uh, the students who can access them well are generally those who have more movement and need less guidance. And so I was like, this is really in alignment with one of our current initiatives within my program. And so one of the things that I thought as I was looking at it all was one of the challenges when lots of information comes out is curation of content. And it's easy to get overwhelmed with a whole bunch of information being thrown at you and how can you curate that and organize it. And so our first step as a class, I said, you know, this is a great teachable moment for my students. I really like the idea of crowdsourcing. Um, anytime that we can figure out how, if we have, if, anytime we have a challenge, if there's a way we can solve that challenge together, we're gonna be so much more successful. And so I thought, okay, well, let's crowdsource this challenge and figure out a way to curate and better organize the content of, um, targeting specifically students with limited mobility or who need really explicit uh, video modeling in order to do a task or activity. So the first thing we did was I created a Padlet. Uh, for me, there's lots of curation tools out there, but the one that is easy to access and you can put in a format that's, uh, to me, easy to navigate and I thought would be easy for parents to navigate is called Padlet. And so I created a Padlet. We had columns on the Padlet. Uh, one of them, they were object skills, dance, fitness, stretching, games, and equipment modifications. And the, my students needed to find one video or a written resource for each of those categories or, or columns and share that on the Padlet. So this was where we could put them all in one large visual space. Then I wanted us to create an app so that you could, instead of, instead of getting overwhelmed with a bunch of them on one visual space, that you could selectively navigate to each one. So the tool that I use for app development, although I know how I know how to code and I can write apps, I found that making a native app through something like uh, that you publish on the App Store or the Play Store is um, or Google Play is like uh, it's costly. So <laughs> I want to provide apps that are free because I want to help our families at all economic statuses. And so if I put something in the, in an app store, if I build a native app, which is a native app is something that lives on your device and will run even if you're not online. And if I want to make a native app, code it, publish it, I have to pay to have it published and I have to constantly update it in order to make it work well within that environment. The, since I want to make free apps, I, use, I make something called an HTML5 app, which to help people understand what that means, it's basically just a web page. <laughs> That's really all it is. You have to have internet service, but it looks like an app. Like it, when it lives on your device, you have a button that looks like an app and it navigates exactly like an app, but you can also run it on a Chromebook, on a 
a laptop, on a desktop computer, on a phone. You can, use, you can run it on any device. And so also I can build it for free. I use a tool called Glide Apps. They have a free version and a paid version. The features that I use to make it, uh, I, I use the free version so I don't have to pay anything. And basically it communicates with a Google Sheet. Now, this is where it becomes user-friendly for crowdsourcing with my students because I just share the Google Sheet with them. I recorded a tutorial for them on how to add the pieces to make it run as an app, and they just follow the tutorial and throw the content in there. And so with, this was a one-week assignment that we had, and they went through everything that people have been posting on Facebook and on Twitter and on YouTube and online, and they picked out the ones that met our target population. So if it was a video that required that required more movement, it couldn't have a lot of activity going on in the background. So we were targeting kind of maybe students with um, autism who might get distracted by a lot of noise and music or flashing lights or something like that. Uh, and our students with more severe disabilities or limited mobility. Um, so I, they shared what they thought would, was applicable to our population that we were targeting, and then I accepted most of them and didn't accept all of them, and then they followed the tutorial through it on the app. Um, then what I did was I reached out to the Facebook group, and I said, okay, I'm making this, we're developing it, what do you need? And a couple of people said, hey, it'd be great if we could have this version in Spanish also. And then another person said, it would be really wonderful if we could have some type of reporting methodology. So where we're learning back uh, what it is the students are doing, some way of tracking what they're doing. All right, how am I doing? Am I getting too long-winded, Scott? <laughs> no, I'm interested. Okay. <laughs> All right, so then the next step uh, that we did was after the students built the app, I, I actually, I translated it into Spanish using um, Google Translate. So Google Translate, you can actually upload an entire, you can, you can install different add-ons to your browser where it will translate an entire page for you, or you can upload a document and it will translate the whole document for you. So I used just this quick tool. It literally took 10 seconds to translate the whole document to Spanish, but I know that Google Translate's not perfect. And so um, what I did then was I, I shared it with my, I have an exchange student from Panama who had to go home because of the pandemic and we miss her very much. And she, I shared it with her and I was like, Hey, can you check this translation? And so she and I spent maybe an hour going through and she told me a couple changes we need to make. So I would say that the translation translated version is pretty close to right. <laughs> um, so we made a Spanish version. So that kind of took care of that challenge. And then the other challenge was the reporting methodology. Um, so I want to take a step back about talk, and talk a minute about using free tools online. Um, everybody knows that, especially in the educational environment, using free tools online, there's an element of risk. Um, every company is going to do some level of tracking. Anytime you go anywhere on the internet, you're going to be tracked, unless you have a tracker blocker, blocker up. Um, you're going to be getting cookies and stuff like that. 
And so you have to make a determination about what's safe and what's not safe to use. Um, Glide apps, uh, anytime you use a new tool, I would recommend that you spend some time on the privacy policy that they have before. Don't just click through and say, yes, I accept. <laughs> Go through and look at your privacy policies and make sure that uh, a, they're not going to sell your information when you sign up to third-party services because then you're going to be getting a lot of junk emails that you have to block and it becomes kind of a, um, I don't know, it's like, a, you, it's like a black hole that you get into. Um, you have to also check to make sure that they're not going to claim ownership to your content. And so um, basically Glide Apps, to me, meets those criteria. I have a couple of websites that I go to also to check um, privacy and security settings, like reviews, reviewers that I like to go to and look at safety before I click accept on um, create and create a new account on a new tool. Now, the cool thing about this app is you do have the ability when you're building the app for someone to enter in their name and email address so you can see that they logged in, but I never enable that in my, in my apps because I do not want to provide Glide apps with that contact information. Um, even though they say they're not going to use it, I still want to have that additional layer of protection. So basically, this app is exactly like going to any web page. That's, that's what it's exactly like. That said, if any teacher is going to use the app, then they need to have it vetted through their district IT. And so sending them the tool, a link to the tool, a link to the app, the privacy statement and saying, hey, is it okay if I distribute this to my students? It's just really smart to always have the IT department for your district review the tool and make sure they're comfortable with it. You don't actually install a program on the device when you run this app you again i'm gonna say this probably 50 times it's just a web page so you're just going to a web page even though it looks like an app but some people get confused and they think it's a program you're installing and you you just want to make sure that if you're going to that web page on a district assigned device then you need to make sure that the district's comfortable with you going to that web page so little security side there, um, that's my technology, my innovation director yeah, coming I, out. <laughs> I, okay. I, would just, I, I like the idea too of even like you detailing the, um, the resource uh, because it sounds like something that teachers could use uh, in itself to curate, uh, you know, specific information for their parents because I do think right now I think that um, all, there is a lot of information out there, but to get it to somebody in an effective and efficient way um, is really kind of become the problem. Um, it's not, I think there is information in our field that is still needed, but I think, I think that's a really great thing. So I think even the, the thing that you're detailing, somebody could then go and do that for their specific school or their specific class and maybe make it towards certain kids with uh, uh, different types of disabilities or different needs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a great collaboration tool and one that, again, it's that curation, organization, and centralization of information. Because I agree with you, there's so much out there, so many fantastic resources, but when I try and dive through them, sometimes I get overwhelmed and my heart starts beating fast, and then yeah. I just give up and I go eat candy. Like, that's just what... <laughs> 
I think I, I, I do think that you're absolutely right. Um, as well as then as being the expert, you can then try to go through and identify um, the worthwhile ones uh, versus the non-worthwhile ones because that's right. also an issue uh, is the validity of, of information out there, right? Um, exactly. Both look shiny and good when you look at them, um, but which one is actually an effective and evidence-based practice and, and whatnot uh, is not always as clear, is it? Um, so yeah, especially if we're going to give it to parents or something like that, you know, um, it allows us to kind of curate and find quality things. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what's cool too, is since you build it through a Google sheet, Glide apps now has a collaboration feature that you can have a team working on a project, but you can also do the same thing by just having your team working on this Google sheet. And so if you have a team of AP professionals in your area district or in your region, you can, you can have everybody shared on that sheet and they can be each adding things in so that you're not feeling as overwhelmed trying to have to constantly go and find new information and put it in there. This is somewhat revolutionary to me. I never thought about all this stuff. So, <laughs> um, so then the next layer, uh, the, are we running out of time or I do want to talk about the reporting? Time is in the pandemic is a, uh, <laughs> a uh, not real. So keep going. Okay. So then the next layer was I wanted to respond to the desire. I was kind of getting there and I segued in security. I wanted to respond to the desire of tracking involvement on the app. And um, I was saying that I don't recommend that you track that involvement by turning on the feature for um, where users enter in their user information. Um, I really wanted it to be just a uh, receiving end, right? An end user where you're just watching, you're not engaging with in terms of entering your personal information into the app. So I built a Google form and in the Google form, basically, what it does is it has each of the activities listed that are in the app and users can enter, you know, log, they can pull the link up on the form and then they check off what they did. And then I also added a feature to the form where they say, okay, here's the activity I did. Tell your teacher, was this too easy for you, too hard for you, or just right? And then they can report back on, um, how they did. Now what's cool about the Google form is you, when they hit submit, you actually, on the Google form, it's safe, right? If you're using your G Suite for education within your school district, it's safe to ask them what their name is or to have them check off. Basically the way I built the sample form is uh, students do a drop down, they pick their first name, they fill out what activities they did, they hit submit. But when they hit submit, it dumps it directly into a Google Sheet for you. So as an APE specialist, then you then have tracking data of activities for reporting back for IEPs. And here's, here are the activities they did and the dates they did them and how easy or hard it was for them. So you've got some fantastic data that will help when you are trying to uh, look at progress towards IEP goals or um, prog or alignment with the general curriculum. Um, there's a lot of flexibilities inside of the Google form 
for you to also incorporate specific IEP goals. So there's a way inside the form where you can add, the, the student selects their name, then when they select their name, the activities that come up are already aligned with their specific IEP goals. So it just shows them the activities to do that are aligned with their IEP goals. Um, since I don't want people's personal information, uh, what the way that I distribute the Google form is I do it as what's called a force copy. So I have a resource sheet that uh, I did a webcast on how to do all of this for the Facebook group. And I provided a resource sheet where I provide a tutorial on how you can build your own app, how I also provide a template for the app, and I provide a template for the Google form. But the templates for the app and the Google form are force copy, which means that you are making your own copy, so you customize it however you want. So I also show in that tutorial how you can incorporate IEP goals and do something called branching in a Google form where you say if a student picks their name, then this is what shows up for them on the Google form. Yeah, that, that, that's a, a huge issue as well, isn't it? Uh, to make sure that, that we're not violating any of those important laws out there on confidentiality. Uh, that has been one of my big, my big concerns with using some of those Google Sheets and such like that. Um, but that that's awesome, uh, and, and, and it's great that you've created those resources. Uh, it sounds really, really valuable right now, um, especially if you are trying to keep monitoring um, those goals and objectives right now, and you have, you know, caseloads that are 50, 60, 100. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, that's really awesome. That's great. Yeah, so like that's, uh, I, I feel like I, what I would like to do now, Christy, is I would like to get those resources, and I, and I think I've seen some of them on the Facebook page, um, and to put them on a blog that I have um, that people can also access. Um, so um, if you could send me some of those videos and such, I'd really like to do that, because I think the stuff that you're talking about is very, very, very applicable to what would be very useful for a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually curated them onto just one one Google Doc, and so all of the links to tutorials and all of that are there. I think what's really neat about what my students and I have built together is that a lot of this information, like you mentioned before, can be turned can be used in other ways and other ways that can make us more efficient and effective in our jobs. Like the IEP branching on the Google Forms, when I used to teach, you know, I had a caseload sometimes of 70, 80, and I'm trying to keep up with all those IEP goals. I had a, a clipboard with a piece of paper with the IEP goals listed there on a, you know, and, and I, tally marks that I was making. And now I could just have it living on my phone. I can very quickly select the student's name who I'm working off and I can check off and even take quick videos of them attaining their IEP goals and hit submit in it. And it lives there on a spreadsheet for me for fantastic data when I go back for reporting uh, my annual meetings or when it's time for a reavow. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, and I feel like you're, you're helping out in multiple ways too, because you're also making it easier, likely for the parents, um, be able to, to navigate things, or you can use that same resource to allow them to better navigate 
all the resources that you have or assignments that you have and so on and so forth. Um, so, I mean, and especially in this time, I think curation is probably a really, really, really important thing that I think we can also overlook a little bit too, because we are so ready and, and I'm definitely somebody that would be at fault for this because I put out a lot of content, but um, I don't know if I always do a good job of, you know, how, I don't know how easy it is unless someone maybe scrolls through my iTunes page, how to find the, find episodes I did three years ago that still might be relevant. Yeah. I think that's where, like, if you're, if you're a content developer and you have a repository of information, making sure that you're using tags in your content is super important. And you have a search feature on your blog or wherever you have your content, because then someone could quickly search a tag or search, yeah. Uh, do a, a quick search for specifically what they're looking for. Otherwise it all kind of, it just kind of disappears. It's a great idea when it's there, but then it, 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 it's like, you know, a tiny dot in a massive, in a massive sky of stars that you're trying, that won't get found again. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, with that, Christy, um, you know, I, I would love just to hear like, you know, being an online learning innovation person, like just what do you think is what's going to happen? <laughs> what's gonna what's like i mean um and are we ready uh in higher ed and in you know k-12 are we ready to to take on online learning in the fall if we need to and do you see that as a possibility um well i think that in terms of my prediction of what's going to happen that's a great question uh my sense is that many universities are going to probably be surveying faculty to see which of their classes can be hybrid, which can be online. Um, they're going to be mobilizing and putting much more dollars into instructional designers that can assist faculty as they offer more work online. Uh, I, I think one of the, I was actually counseling a, a friend of mine the other day about this, who's an administrator, and it's easy to get overwhelmed with the, the scariness of what's happening in our world. And I think the best way to look at it is um, anytime you have a challenge, you need to, you need to really look at what the lesson is that's involved in that challenge. And in higher education, often you will see some faculty who get really used to doing things the way they've always done them. And this is requiring them to think more creatively about the way they're teaching their students. And one of the benefits of what we're going through right now is that when things, when we are able to reconvene, you know, in medium to larger size groups, some of those creative ways that we learn to teach, we're going to find actually were more effective ways of teaching content. Not to say necessarily that teaching online is more effective, but there are some ways that we have to teach online that actually end up meeting a learning outcome better than the way that we did it in a face-to-face -face way. And so incorporating some of those lessons into our face-to-face -face instruction I think we'll live, we'll live with many of our faculty and it actually can change education for the better. And so maintaining focus on this is, this is one of the perks of, of the challenge that we're faced with right now is I think really important. Uh, I do think that I, as an online instructor, uh, one of the biggest, biggest challenges that took me a while, cause I've taught online now for 12 years, um, was building community within my online learners. And I've had to come up with a lot of creative strategies to do that. And 
and it's been successful. Uh, but I will say that I don't feel as connected to my students as I did when I taught them face to face. And uh, I feel connected to them and I feel like they learn well, but I'm not as connected to them. And it's, it, that's, uh, I don't have a, a great answer for that. I think every bit of online instruction research will tell you that the ideal method of learning uh, that provides flexibility and provides connectivity is hybrid instruction. And so anytime that we can build an, an environment where we have some face-to-face, -face, whether it's Zoom or in physical person, uh, having that, that those times when we can look at each other and interpret facial expressions and really convey intent the way that we mean it is, is going to, because if you have a relationship with your students, they're going to learn better. And so ways that we can build those and maintain those relationships is most important. Well said. Um, yes, I, I, I am probably with your administrator friend. I am scared, but I, I do also see that to me, um, I would say that it pushes uh, me to be very prepared, like, like very prepared for the semester, you know, walking in. And as well as I find myself giving very detailed feedback uh, where maybe before I just made like kind of open statements to the class in person. Um, not that I wouldn't give some feedback on assignments, but I'm giving really, really, really f refined every single one of them now. But um, yes, it's scary, but also exciting times or and looking for the lesson. I like that. Yeah. And I, you know, the other thing I should mention, one of the benefits that I do find from teaching online is um, uh, I had, I, put my lectures up and recorded in a tool called Kaltura and it allows me to see how long students spend watching my lectures and how many times they watch it. And my students watch my lectures five to six times and they go over and over it. When I teach face to face, they don't do that. They, they're, they get it one time. It's a one shot deal. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, those are, those are actually things uh, we were thinking about, uh, years in our last edition of our textbook and my co-author Lori Zittle and I for every single chapter we recorded a lecture so that if there we know that there are APE faculty out there who are fantastic general physical education faculty but weren't as trained in adaptive PE and they're given the intro to APE course to teach but they don't know it as well and so we decided you know what we'll do is we'll we will do a recording in case you want to use a flipped instruction model where you're providing the students with the lecture before class and then we also provided the we have an instructor's manual that provides hands-on active learning activities you can do that are aligned with each chapter. So you can, you can rely on the experts in an APE to teach the lecture and the information. And so even, I'm not saying you have to do that with our textbook, it's just a benefit of our textbook. It's also a benefit of you making your own recorded lectures because again, that's something that your students will watch over and over again right now while your class is online, but also when you get back to normal, if as normal as it will be, whatever our normal starts to look like, you then can also still use those recordings in a flipped instruction model where you are doing the higher level thinking, critical thinking, content creation together in your face-to-face -face meetings and having them watch the lectures outside of class. Absolutely, as well as just supplemental like content to rewatch if they need it. 
Um, right. Like as a refresher. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. No, this is wonderful stuff. And that's awesome that you're doing that with that, the textbook, uh, having those recorded lectures. Well, Christy, I really appreciate you coming on and talking a little bit about the resources and, uh, you know, just sharing your expertise uh, in a variety of ways. So um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Scott. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Christy, and take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye.